Welcome to Free the Mind, Free the People, a podcast where we come together to empower each other through knowledge and discuss the issues that shape our everyday lives. All opinions and information shared in this podcast are held by the host alone and do not represent the stances of the University of Central Florida and the Department of Sociology. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Free the Mind, Free the People. I'm Hallie, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Marina. And I'm Annie, a co-writer and senior editor of this podcast. Last week, we did an episode on the history of the NRA and how it affects politics. So if you missed that, go ahead and watch that. And the first episode of this mini-series was an episode about the Christian right and how they affect the social issues that we deal with today. And so today we're going to add to our final episode of the mini-series, and that's what we will begin soon. Yeah, so today we are here for part three of that mini-series. And Annie is leading us in this conversation uh, about the Cook brothers, uh, their corporation, and their influence in culture and politics, especially on freedom of speech debates in college campuses like UCF. Yes, thank you, Marina. Uh, So today we'll be diving into essentially what we're framing as like the structures created by the Koch family and their businesses. And I'm going to start by talking a little bit about um, who they are and how they made their fortune. Um, And then I'll talk about the evolution of their businesses and its role in changing U.S. uh, our U.S. political landscape. And then finally, we'll apply some of this knowledge to an event happening recently at our university, the University of central florida are y'all ready for this absolutely very ready (laughs) so um i want to start off by explaining who the Koch brothers are because i think we say that and we don't actually know what it means right um so the Koch brothers refers to the sons of fred c Koch, who i will affectionately refer to as daddy Koch because there's another fred involved um and so from oldest to youngest their sons his sons are frederick Charles, David, and Bill. Um, David and Bill are twins, the two youngest. But when we refer to the contemporary Koch brothers, oftentimes we're referencing Charles and David. Um, David did pass away in 2019, though, so really today it's just Charles. These two were the two who were involved in Koch industries, um, like into today's times. And I'll explain some of this family drama and history later in the episode. So more about who they are. Um, you know, if anyone's been living under a rock or hasn't heard the name, uh, Charles and David, um, Charles is estimated to own around $60 billion, and that's about how much David Koch owned uh, when he died in 2019 as well. Bill Koch is estimated to be worth around $1 billion, and Frederick the oldest was the chill one, um, who I could not find net worth information on because he, like, did philanthropy and art stuff um, until he died. So there was one chill Koch brother, according to my research. (laughs) Um, But what they're known for... uh, is being wealthy and being hardcore libertarians. That's their two things. Um, Can you define what libertarian is for us? I know it's kind of like a political ideology, but I want to get to the core of what it means to be a libertarian. Thank you, Holly. Um, I think that some will say libertarians are just embarrassed Republicans, but I will say that there's more to it than that. There really is. Um, There's some like philosophical underpinnings that explain the political stance, right? Um, So in general, libertarians uh, heavily emphasize individualism and private property, which leads them to be pretty against government intervention and regulations. Uh, I see this as like capitalism on steroids, right? Um, The idea is that if the government could just get its grubby fingers out of the market um then we would progress as a society um so this kind of philosophical underpinning is really really important to contextualize the decisions that the Koch family made as they built their empire though and so to build a little bit on this they are these they're very strict adherents to this austrian school of economics um which kind of put out this philosophy that emphasizes the subjectivity of value. Um, And so this really is the idea that personal choice and subjectivity of value are these kind of like logical variables in economic systems. And what this does is it focuses in on individual decisions, right? Um, And so this is really anti-government because regulations get in the way of those kind of organic individual decision-making processes. And then obviously that heavy emphasis on private ownership, right? Then also flows from that. um, 
um, emphasis on individualism and the subjectivity of value. Um, finally, they believe that free markets then are the space where discovery and progress will take place, right? If you are maximally efficient with your resources um, and markets are totally free, the idea is that that's when like discoveries and inventions and human progress takes place. This is really antithetical to the way our current ideas operate. Um, we require social safety nets in some of our current ideas, like social security as a program, right? Does not fit into this framework. Um, and it leads to their business doing them doing strange things, right? So Coke Industries um, at one point shifted from quarterly and yearly budgets to reporting only profits. So this does some interesting things. I, I want to ask, like, what do you think this does? <laughs> what do y'all think this does? I mean, it seems like to me, all they care about is making money and it doesn't matter how they're making their money as long as it goes up in that profit sheet. That's that's the end goal here. Yeah, absolutely. And we see this literally like I'm going to bring us back to the beginning and how they made their money. And that is that is it. Right. It's profits above all and no question of how you get the profit. Right. As long as that number is over at the end of the quarter or the year, then then we're good. Everything's good. And so Daddy Coke. Um, unsurprisingly made his fortune us uh, using the coke method um, in his oil refining processes and the coke method referred to the strategy of stealing oil from Native American reservations to ensure that the coke industries company was making a profit at the end of the day they did this for a really long time um, they were investigated by the federal government but by the 80s um, the coke coke industries was the largest the single largest purchaser of crude oil in the United States they had a monopoly on oil transportation specifically to rural areas um so they were the only people that would shit bring oil into like the most vulnerable places in the country essentially um interestingly though the company was largely a middleman at this point right doing the oil transportation and so the company name was largely out of the public eye um even when they were being relied on uh for people daily like when they were being relied on to fill up their cars with the gas for example i will um, say i've heard of the Koch brothers politically for a long time but never knew their connection to oil at all so it's very interesting to learn about all this right and that's why i wanted to heavily emphasize like their beginnings and the business aspect because it totally feeds into the political aspect but i think it's missing for most of the story that we tell um so keep that in mind as we go throughout right like that this maximization of efficiency right this um emphasis on profit above all follows them regardless of if it's like a specific business venture or if it's a political venture um the other thing they do is they name the company Coke Industries specifically to be ambiguous. They knew how big Coca-Cola was at the time and they wanted their company's name to be confused with Coca-Cola. Um, again, adding to like the secrecy of what they're doing. Um, so I see this and this, my synopsis of this is the Coke family makes their money in these early days off of, off of exploiting a system um, as a middleman in secrecy. Um, and that's kind of a theme that outlasts Daddy Coke who unfortunately dies in 1967 and then Charles um, takes over the company. Uh, and this is what I see as the kind of beginnings of Coke 2.0. Charles Koch is the guy who was very much into the libertarian and Austrian um, economists. And so he brings these uh, almost immediately into the company as he kind of reorganizes it after his dad's death. Um, they expand the oil businesses and are, you know, making just a ton of money off of that. But one of the first things Charles Koch does um, when he comes into the company is in the early 70s, he busts uh, the union at their biggest oil refinery in Minnesota, who which at the time was like one of the strongest union states so whoo that took a lot of effort i mean that's like a podcast episode in and of itself but the strategy was to go and not compromise with the union guys okay so think about unions right what do unions do they protect their workers they make sure that their guys get like breaks for example they make sure that they're, they're safe right they make sure that 
guys who don't have qualifications to work on things aren't working on those things. And what that does, though, in Coke's eyes is, like, really cuts into the efficiency at the refinery. Like, they are taking too many breaks, right? Like, there are way too many rules to maximize profits here. So you have to bust the union. And so they come and they do what, like, they break all of the unspoken rules, right? They refuse to negotiate. Like, they negotiate, but with no no real negotiation. They pretty right. much, Coke comes in, takes a stance, says, this is how everything's changing, right? We're going to do things our ways and the union will ha no longer have power. This was a really long battle. And I think one of the things that comes out of this is like understanding the patience of Coke Industries. Um, They know that it's the long game. So as the union got striked and vandalized, the scab trucks coming in, right? And just like did everything that they could to make it hard to produce oil at this refinery and transport oil. Um, They even... Uh, like stole and drove a train car into the refinery like crazy things happen um and the coke brother or charles specifically did not back down um they ended up busting the union and that refinery specifically bankrolled so many of their business ventures in the decades to come so busting that union was really important for them to go make all of the acquisitions they make in the future um the other thing, big thing they do during this time is they realize the importance of information gathering, right? If they're trying to be maximally efficient, like they start gathering information of their like businesses, right? Like internally. So like a refinery, for example, like understanding every piece of machinery in there to then operate that machinery or that refinery at op optimum efficiency well they start doing this with markets as well they start gathering data on like the oil markets right and understanding it like so so well that they can understand any loopholes or opportunities to make money um this is kind of ahead of their time they're some of the first to adopt ibm computing in their companies to start processing this data because they had too much to do by hand at a certain point um so we see them being like very um like strategic and innovative right to to maximize their profits the other things they do is they ensure that like their refineries are grandfathered into like these new uh pollution regulations are starting to get around the 80s and 90s right and they take advantage of loopholes and pollution regulations and end up um polluting a ton of Minnesota, the areas around their refineries in Minnesota and probably other places as well. We just have that one recorded more. Um, they get in a ton of trouble with the state of Minnesota and the EPA because they're literally just dumping ammonia water onto the land. And the reason they do this is like we have these levels, right? These like um maximum levels where like the amount of ammonia you can dump into the Mississippi River, which is where the, this refinery would dump into. They were gonna so the they have to dump all of this runoff into the Mississippi river and there's this like certain amount right that they can have of ammonia in the water um they have way more than that because they're not upgrading their machinery <laughs> because they want to be super efficient and they don't want to spend money on upgrading their machinery and so what they do right is they keep this pollution level like right under the line which causes so many problems because when things go wrong right when the machinery breaks down or if something unexpected happens like there's no wiggle room right for the ammonia levels to still be within this kind of like acceptable standard um so they end up just again <laughs> polluting just polluting the environment as you can tell like the coke industry is getting into a little bit of trouble right they've got lawsuits um from the epa they're being investigated um by the state of minnesota for this pollution um Another thing that's happening around this time is um, with this kind of vast expansionism that they're they're working off of, they buy Purina Mills. Um, there's a lot behind this. The goal is Coke wanted to take over like the food industry in the U.S. Thankfully, they failed through this acquisition, but that was the goal. They buy Purina Mills for $670 million in debt, which is so not the Coke MO. They are so anti-debt. Um, and what happens with this is they cannot squeeze out that $670 million. Um, their efforts to kind of maximize, right, the money out of the Purina Mills company is not working and the bankers start wanting their money back. Um, but Coke Industries refuses responsibility. They say Purina Mills is a distinct company. Um, they're separate, they're independent, right? Um, and the banks were like, no, bro, you have billions of dollars. Like you need to, you bought this company, you have some responsibility. And so I think they do end up paying a little bit into like making sure Purina is going to be okay. But the point is this teaches 
Charles Koch a ton. The lawsuits and th this Purina issue with the banks teaches Koch a ton. And it's that he can't, he cannot stay separated from the state and the government. This is, again, the Koch brothers are very much anti-government in their philosophy, or at least Charles Koch. But he sees at this time that the government is required for him to play out his philosophy um so you see them kind of contradicting themselves at this moment and you see this kind of carry on to today um where these libertarian principles are still kind of driving what they're doing but they're very explicitly using the government today um to make sure they have what they need uh to to make sure that they can make the most money at the end of the day yeah and i think that going back to my episode um on the Christian right and Christian nationalism, uh, some of them are, I would say, libertarians, but a lot of them are just regular, I guess, <laughs> conservative slash Republicans who claim to want like no government or very little government intervention in their affairs. But when it comes down to it, they also do this. They also, there's also this contradiction of them using the state and lawsuits and again going back to like even what's happening in schools and these organizations funded by the christian right are giving legal counsel and basically going to court um about these issues like anti-lgbtq laws and everything um so yeah so they it's just very interesting i i wanted to point out that irony that they're libertarians but this we see this across like right-wing conservative groups that have a lot of influence in politics in our nation they will just use use the state whenever it's convenient for their interests and i think it's easy too because the republican and republicans and libertarians are distinct groups of people but when we think of the right we think of republicans right we think of this like mainstream kind of like a political you know institution and in reality right there is this like section of that the right in this country that believes in some things that are kind of antithetical to the republican position and it's interesting too because i think that um like when we uh, for anyone listening who's heard of the Koch brothers you know I, I wish i could do a poll right now of how many of you like associate them with libertarianism or if we're much quicker to associate them with this institutional republicanism, right? So even then, mm -hmm. the lines of ideology are obscured, right? It's yes. not super clear. Um, so thank you. That It's so interesting thinking of, like, even talking about this episode to my fiancé before doing it. Like, he's arguing with me. The Koch brothers are not libertarians. I'm like, <laughs> bro, I'm the one doing the research. But I think it speaks to, right, this, like, mainstream understanding of libertarianism, of the role of government, right, of republicanism and what we see as like these mainstream ideologies and then the actual philosophies that are driving changes on the ground um and we'll go into more of those like driving of changes as well i want to shift back though so i want to talk about libertarianism as it relates to uh charles Koch's business practices so he creates early on um his way of doing business and essentially living life is kind of how this is explained and it's called market-based management um so the idea is that you manage a company or you manage your life like you would markets um there are 10 guiding principles i'm gonna read them to you now just, just for anyone who's curious integrity stewardship and compliance principle and entrepreneurship which is trademarked um transformation knowledge humility respect and self-actualize i have a bone to pick those are all nouns except for the last one like why would you make a list of nouns and then put a verb as the last <laughs> like get out of here that is, so i'd like to edit this as self-actualization but i am not the one in charge of coke industries <laughs> and so Charles Koch reorganizes his company so that managers are expected to act and see themselves as property owners. Okay, think about this. Managers manage a department. That department is now framed as their property. Their property that they need to like make the maximum profit off of. And they're told to, to like adopt these new roles and responsibilities of a property owner, not necessarily like a 
manager of people and money and things. Um, uh, there are a couple other fun little quirks about this, right? Um, Coke Industries is and will always be, I think, a private company, which means that there are no shareholders to answer to, which means if they want to make decisions, change things, buy new companies, do whatever, the only person that needs to say yes is Charles Coke. Charles Coke. Things move quickly, right? They're able to really respond to gaps they see in markets, right? And and exploit um, loopholes that they find. They're really, they're able to respond so quickly quickly to those and really be the first to exploit things. Um, this all leads to Charles Koch creating a value creation strategy, which I think died pretty quickly because not only were these business, these kind of managers turned into business leaders of like their own private property, they were now told that they had to. It was not a choice anymore. They had to expand. So managers now are in charge of like acquiring new companies too. Insanity. This is literally what led to the Purina decisions. This is why they bought Purina. Because some guy thought it, it some some guy lower on the totem pole thought that he would self-actualize, right? <laughs> really live up to tr what Charles Koch wants out of him. And so he's like, I'm gonna make this giant deal with debt with Purina. And they say yes quickly because there's no shareholders, and then there's a mess. So there are mm -hmm. problems that come from that. I want to shift to now because at the same time that Charles is kind of like creating this philosophy, reorganizing the company, um, there's some family drama going on. So I've been talking a lot about Charles, right? I will say, so David during this time is almost like a public figurehead. He runs on the libertarian VP ticket in 1980 um, for president. So he's kind of like our public kind of face of the company. Charles is making the decisions. Bill and Frederick uh, want to be bought out. They don't want to have anything to do with the company. And so Coke Industries takes a, like a billion dollar loan to buy Bill and Frederick out. They pay back this loan pretty quickly though, and Bill goes off. Bill is like, you lied about how much money you have if you were able to pay back that loan that quickly, right? So Bill wants more money. He thinks Charles lied and did not give him like his fair share of the billions of dollars they own. Okay, so Bill goes on a two decade long vendetta against Charles. I'm talking, remember all those lawsuits and like government investigations I referenced? Yeah, Bill hires private investigators and like gives information to all of these, like the state government and the, the lawyers that are fighting. Wow. Yeah, like scorched earth. Um, <laughs> hires private investigators like literally to just prove that his brother is a bad person so that he can get more money in the long run. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> and so I think there are some main things though that Charles Koch learned from this era, right? Like all the mistakes they made with the company growing too quickly um, and like using these libertarian principles almost like too freely without having too much of a, uh, with Charles still being like liable for the decisions they're making. And at the same time, it's this fair family drama. And I think the one thing um, that Bill does that pisses Charles off the most is that Bill threatens to take the company public. That changes everything. The only reason that they can do what they do and amass the wealth they, that they can is because it's a private company. And so Charles Koch, this is almost like a Coke 3.0, right? Coke, <laughs> Inter, uh, Coke Industries 3.0 because Charles Koch, I, here's the way I see this. This Charles Koch and the Coke Industries is like that boss fight where you think you you win, you beat the boss, right? And then he like comes back 10 times stronger and that just keeps yeah. happening over and over again. <laughs> Infuriating. Um, but I think that this is what really links us back to the structures as well, mm -hmm. right? Um, Coke's strength, Charles Coke in specific, comes from his knowledge, right? Like this, under this deep, deep understanding of markets and this understanding of how he can again, maximally profit from any situation. Um, so this requires the ability to learn systems and to understand culture and shift culture, right? So that people then are like in a, following your beliefs. Um, and it requires a very deep understanding of structures, right? Like you cannot game the system until you know the system really well, really, really well. Um, and this, points to so many questions we have for today right like how did the courts get packed how are state governments being taken over in these specific ways like we can see that this is them playing the game and the biggest thing 
Charles Koch does to kind of combat all of the issues um, he had previously was he fortified the corporate veil around him. That was his main strategy. I will say I learned about the term the corporate veil in my judicial processes class when we learned about how to be a lawyer. And like, I can't stress enough how hard it is to pierce a corporate veil. So like when you're suing, let's say damages have happened, like there's a case where a coal mining area flooded and killed 100 people. Um, and what they had to prove the lawyers was that the people at the top of this corporation knew that this was going to happen. If they weren't able to pierce the corporate veil, then the people at the top would not be held accountable. And that's what the Koch brothers are trying to like hide themselves from. If they do something wrong, if people die, if there are damages, they don't want to be the one that's losing their own money. And so that's what they're protecting them from. And it's just crazy to me to hear that like they don't they, they don't want the the grimy hands in in the pot you know they they don't want this invisible hand but you know they're breaking up unions they're stopping people from attacking them in lawsuits they're trying to take over the food industry like it seems like they they are the hand they don't <laughs> want no hand they just want to be the hand. Yes. And so <laughs> it's frustrating to see that work out when they're telling you to believe that a hand shouldn't exist while simultaneously being the hand that creates everything else around you. So that's just a weird thing I noticed throughout mm -hmm. this discussion. Oh my gosh. It's like, it's scary. I almost have no words in so many at the, <laughs> at the same time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so to build off on that, the corporate veil, right? Like the idea behind the corporate veil is that shareholders or owners of corporations should not be held personally responsible for mistakes that their companies make. Um, so it's not even like mistakes that Charles Koch makes. It's more, it's, it's even like, okay, you push this like deregulation, union busting, you know, culture, and you acquire all of these companies, like some of the like, kind of like latent <laughs> functions of that will be like, people are going to get hurt, right? If you like take away, you know, all of their, the things they use for safety, for example. And so you can see how that history of lawsuits would really, you know, intrigue Charles Koch and make him interested in mitigating his like personal responsibility when it comes to all of these companies. Um, and they go on to acquire like DuPont, right? Georgia Pacific. These are huge, huge companies. They go on to acquire companies that like double and then triple their workforce. They end up being the employers of, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people. So there are a lot of people, right? And decisions that are made that could then lead back to Charles Koch. And so really they needed to fortify the corporate bill by placing as much of this like reasonable doubt between Charles Koch and then in the work on the ground or the employees doing that work. We can see places, there are places we can see behind this bill though. Um, they do so much of their work in secret, but there are, there are places we can see it. Um, and so for example, Koch Industries, makes a ton of money on trading resources. So I am not an economist and I'm not a Wall Street person. I don't know how, I don't, derivatives, futures. <laughs> <laughs> All I know is they make a lot of money doing this. And I also know that for them, it, so Coke Industries is really like the parent company of so many subsidiaries. And they have companies that are, that are like Coke oil, right? Like Coke cellulose for like their cellulose plants. And so, um, all of these, like they trade within all of those markets. They trade on the oil market. They trade on the electricity market, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, and so, but what, what they need though is because information is such a key, they kind of need all of these traders to be in the same place at the same time. So they, we can see behind the corporate veil um, sometimes when they're trying to trade on markets and trying to really like understand markets before trading. So they will have Coke oil and Coke cellulose, you know, potentially in the same place, um, not as independent companies, right? Helping each other out for the bigger Coke name. There are some moments where we see this that the veil is a farce right um and then all of this is important i think too because we are going to move on to some like we're sociologists we want to know about the culture all the 
this is interesting, but really want to know about culture. Um, but it's important because like we can see how it's this pattern of, of exerting and obscuring influence in business spaces, right? So oil, electricity, food, but the ultimate goal again is always to maximize profits. Um, and so as we move on to some of the more cultural efforts to enact change, like keep those goals in mind, right? Because those goals don't change and it's always the long game for the Koch brothers. But ultimately like they're, it, it will all, whatever they're doing will always line up with uh, like an expansion of their wealth. And so another thing that happens as uh, Charles Koch kind of solidifies his corporate veil, um, that we're talking like, you know, early 2000s here. Um, they also start to create PACs, um, political action committees, um, and they start to get in bed with think tanks as well. So the first of which is like a very well-known think tank now, ALEC, which stands for the American Legislative Exchange Council. Um, this is a group that pushes policy targeted specifically at the state level. Um, it was founded by a Catholic conservative, Paul Weyrich, um, who is also the founder of the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> and <go>. they're <laughs> Yeah, but it all connects. And their whole thing is they push issues that are funded by corporate sponsors. It's pay to play. 5000 bucks at the beginning, right? So Coke, Coke Brothers, Charles, the company itself, whoever, I guess it's got to be the company. The corporation gives 5000 bucks to Alec and then Alec will push policy that is whatever the Coke Brothers want. Um, so today, um, oh, so it, what's crazy is they... They push, they do model bills. So I don't know if y'all know what like a model bill is, but it's literally like Alec writes a bill so the lawmakers don't have to write it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Why between, is that legal? <laughs> so USA Today and an Arizona uh, newspaper did a little bit of research into Alec's influence. Um, and they found that bills based on these Alec model bills, which are literally just like word, like the lawmakers just pulled them word for word, were introduced 2,900 times in all 50 states between 2010 and 2018. So it's eight years. 600 of them became law. So 600 bills passed between 2010 and 2018 were literally written by Alec. They were model bills written by Alec. And so today, private corporations pay between twelve dollars and $25,000 a year. Um, all this is from a USA Today article I'll put in the, we'll put in the citations. Um, and lawmakers pay around $100 every two years. And what Alec does is they don't just draft model bills and take money. They um, host seminars and do like education for Republicans as well. Um, so let me give you an example of the first time the Koch brothers used Alec to like push through what they wanted. In the early 2000s, um, Alec started hiring speakers to go to industry events in California to promote deregulation of the electricity industry. The Koch brothers wanted a free market for electricity in California. All right, I'm going to ask y'all another question here. What happens when you put electricity on a free market, y'all? The price goes up. It becomes a luxury, like, <laughs> not good, not good. No, there's a reason why, like, public utilities, we usually have public utilities be the ones, like, doing the electricity, the water, the stuff we need to, like, survive, right? Mm -hmm. And we're talking California, we're not talking a place, like, like the, California gets hot, that's all I'll say. Um, and so... Um, Alec puts a, a bunch of money, uh, or the Koch brothers put a bunch of money into Alec. Alec goes and essentially convinces California's lawmakers to deregulate their electricity market and create a free electricity market in 2000. Um, uh, so Koch brothers obviously start to exploit the system, but one thing that happened to kind of maybe mitigate the fact that electricity might become a luxury <laughs> was that the state of california put a cap on the price that corporation or that they could um charge consumers for electricity this pisses the Koch brothers off right <laughs> like at first it was supposed to be good because they ensured that the utilities they so california forced the utilities to like stop there's a whole they they set up a system where there was a cap so that the utilities could could profit right what happens though is like electricity gets expensive and the utilities are like private companies want to profit even more like there's room for them to profit but they can't because they're only allowed to tap into this market where there's caps um but there's an emergency electricity market so electricity is interesting because you can't like store it and use it later like they do it it's day of you buy you set the plants to buy the electricity like the day before um and so 
Coke really wants to take advantage of this market. And so what happens is there's like these capped markets, right? Companies can't exploit people on electricity, but California also created an emergency market. So if there was a situation where they didn't buy enough electricity for the day before that they would have, right, this like, they would have places to buy electricity from at a higher cost. Um, the Koch brothers really want to sell their electricity here, right? Because they will make more money. That's really it. Um, and so what they do is they create this scheme to sell their electricity to a company in Arizona, which then there was a loophole where that company was allowed to sell it to the utility at the higher price. And the Koch brothers couldn't do that in California. They had to, the electricity didn't leave the state and go to Arizona, right? And then come back to California. It literally is them just like taking advantage. So it's so interesting. They use Alec to totally change California's market. Okay, so now the Koch brothers are gaming this system. It's called like parking. Um, they're parking all of these trades in through Arizona. So the people who have to buy the electricity from them are the utilities, the publicly owned utilities in the state of California. This cost California billions of dollars, billions of dollars, right? Like Cal California is screwed because the Koch brothers. I so back to, I'm thinking back to like how you mentioned like maximizing profit and not caring like where the money comes from. This is such an example of that. It really mm -hmm. is. Um, so they get their fingers, they get their hands into state government and it's not, it it, it's like zero to a hundred real quick. It's like, what ways can we totally <laughs> collapse entire systems? Um, so I'll say too, at the same time, um, they cause electricity shortages. It was like the hottest days of the summer in California and there were blackouts happening. And literally we can trace these blackouts and people potentially like suffering in the heat, right? Literally to the Koch brothers gaming the system and making the cost of electricity so high in California through a think tank like Alex being like the genesis of this. Whew. That's just one example, y'all. Yeah, that's a lot. And like, I can't stress enough how important it seems to be that they're using this idea of there shouldn't be the invisible hand just so that they can control everything. Like, mm -hmm. that's that's what they're doing every it's time. Pretty much they're like, like, oh, survival of the fittest. Yeah, because uh, that's basically what libertarian like a hardcore libertarian well, like, with a twist survival yeah. of the fittest and this will make us the most like inventive progressive like we will be the best society we can be if we use this principle right, right. like they're saying it's good for you the person but ultimately it's not for you whatsoever and so it's like they're saying uh, libertarianism is going to help you as a person, but really it's just helping them control more money. <laughs> and I know, I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but I know, Annie, that you are going to get into like the types of interest groups that they have helped fund, including some that have an impact on our culture. So it's in to me, it's like, so what kind of progress, what do they see as a progressive society, like a progressed or whatever society? if what they're actually funding is conservatism or conservatism. Mm -hmm. Well, and I will say, I mean, I this is something that didn't make it into the podcast notes just because there's so much. They use Republicans. They know Republicans are vulnerable to their, like their libertarian magic and like very explicitly manipulate and manipulated throughout the history and continue to manipulate Republicans. They knew they needed them, right? Um, because they were close enough. So yeah, it's all a big manipulation. And I am gonna move into the culture stuff right now, actually. Um, <laughs> Like in, in the culture stuff, really, I'm. This is a very small example. It was hard to break this down, and I'm, I was almost glad Matt Walsh came because it gave me something to, like specific to focus on because they have mm. so much influence in so many different spaces, right? So let's. I want to zero in on um, the current free speech war being waged on college campuses. Um, college campuses that have long been seen as like bastions of freedom when it comes to thought and speech, right? Um, and so there's like a this free speech war is argued to be manufactured by the Koch brothers and I'll outline some of this. I want to shout out because I get like most of this section's information from the book Free Speech and Coke Money by Ralph, Ralph Wilson and Isaac Kimola. It's super great book. <laughs> Go read it if you have the time. Um, and it really outlines how this war is manufactured by a network that the Koch brothers created and fund, right? Um, 
interestingly, it's noted that these the Austrian economists that Charles Koch has been like so into, um, and Charles Koch and his principles, they always have seen education as a space to change culture. That has always been a part of their philosophy. Um, specifically culture around economic ideas, right? And so it, it's really interesting to me that these strategies are now being used for a topic like free speech. It makes my sociology brain tingle a little bit. <laughs> I ask questions like whose speech is being threatened, right? Whose free speech or whose voices are silenced when Coke money like defines a debate, right? Um, wh whose voices aren't heard in that, right? Uh, the general idea though is that universities in the US, they believe are these bastions of liberalism which does not fit within libertarianism um and to combat this right they need a libertarian voice um on campus or even republican voices will do for them um mm -hmm. to frame themselves as essentially oppressed within the current university system so they need to say that like Republicans or libertarians um, like are oppressed on college campuses. And they do this by bringing inflammatory speakers to campuses to prompt outrage. So they can then claim that their First Amendment free speech rights are being threatened, right? This is the free speech war, the manufactured war. So the goal is to take over the entire market, right? The free speech market. It's interesting thinking of it like that, but that is 100% how the Koch brothers think about it. Um, and so what they do is like top to bottom take over, right? So they have a donor network first, right? Like this is where the, the money is kind of consolidated and comes from. So they have Coke family foundations, right? At the top. Um, they also, uh, a lot of these free speech debates are funded by the Bradley Foundation uh, and Harry Bradley co-founded the John Birch Society with Daddy Coke. So I just wanna, there's again, these connections, right? Um, and the some of the other donors, the two, other two big ones are groups called Donors Trust and Donors Capital Fund. These are both um, founded by someone named Whitney Ball who attended many Coke seminars um, and innovated the use of anonymous money in politics. So Donors Trust and the Donors Capital Fund are both anonymous donor groups. Yay. Okay. <laughs> fun, right? Typical. Um, it's so typical, right? And it's funny too, because it's like Coke Foundation and then like Anonymous Foundations. It's one or the other, right? Like you're like screaming your name from the mountaintops or you're like completely hiding your name in the shadows. Mm -hmm. Um and there is also evidence that the Coke industries and the Coke brothers have funded student groups that bring student groups that bring speakers to campuses. So some of these student groups go by the names of Students for Liberty, the Young Americans for Liberty, Young Americans for Freedom, and Good Old Turning Point USA. Um, I don't know if those Shout ring out. any bells. <laughs> I will say I see Turning Point USA pretty frequently um, outside of my classroom. When I leave class, they are out there. So if you're so, one of them, hi. <laughs> hello. Um, but I say that to say like there's a at least anecdotally, a presence on UCF's campus of some of these groups, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Koch brothers also have a history of funding the speakers themselves. So um, Milo Yiannopoulos is like the first speaker who like made their name um, inciting speech on campuses. Milo Yiannopoulos, um, I think it was Breitbart that he was initially hired, um, hired to, and he was pretty much this... Uh, uh, I don't know how to describe him in a way. <laughs> Milo Yiannopoulos was almost like a public figurehead for um, like pretty what we're seeing as like kind of extreme views on the right, which are now pretty normative views, right? So specifically when it comes to like um, the right to say whatever you want even if it's racist or sexist or homophobic, right? Like, so he, mm -hmm. the hill Milo will die on is like, I, I have free speech, right? And free speech means that like, I can say whatever. So some of that stuff. Um, other speakers that come along that are funded by these networks uh, include Ben Shapiro. I don't know if y'all have it. Hallie, do you want to speak to Ben Shapiro uh, at all? Uh, we don't claim him is all I'll say. <laughs> The Jewish people do not claim Ben Shapiro. <laughs> ben Shapiro is also a menace culturally, just like Milo. In terms of like fanning flames of these kind of um, rights-based cultural arguments, um, Ben Shapiro, again, is another one that like 
I'm not going to speak for him. It seems like he would defend the use of slurs, right, as speech, like, because there is this this belief that, like, freedom of speech is so integral to who we are as Americans. Um, okay, so they, they, they have these donor networks, right, that are both anonymous and named. They fund the student groups. They fund speakers themselves that come to college campuses. They also fund the media outlets that then report the stories about the college spe the speakers going to college campuses um in some of these um or these news outlets please listeners if you're skeptical please go google the or look these up campus reform um the college fix breitbart the daily caller national review a uh, real clear politics washington examiner these are just some of the media outlets that that report that there is a campus free speech war happening right so again we talk about like the manufacturing of like the ideology and the crisis like you can set all of these situations up right you can fund speakers fund student groups organize speakers but what really gets like the culture war going right is then that media outlet taking that story and turning it into to, like a, a pattern right a story on the right that like again to today the campus free speech stuff we'll talk about it in a second how it follows us even to today um and the last thing i want to talk about because they fund other things they fund policy change through initiatives like think tanks right impacts um they also fund specific academics and academic centers charles Koch literally founded and funds a research center at george mason university um and even international efforts to kind of export market-based management and like uh culture wars okay so that is kind of a background to like uh some fun things happening on our campus that we've alluded to okay so i won't hold you in suspense any longer I won't hold you in suspense any longer. Um, what we're alluding to is that conservative, famous conservative speaker Matt Walsh came to the University of Central Florida, our college campus, a couple of weeks ago and caused a little bit of a controversy. <laughs> um, but it's kind of interesting that I was setting up to do this episode because I saw Matt Walsh coming and I went, oh my gosh, that is a perfect example of that network that I literally just outlined to y'all from the donors to the student groups to the speakers themselves and the media outlets, all of it. And so for those of you who don't know who Matt Walsh is, you may want to turn this off and just protect your brainwaves. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's talk about Matt Walsh. Um, Matt Walsh uh, works for the Daily Wire currently. The Daily Wire was founded by our boy Ben Shapiro, um, who came up at Breitbart, which is funded by Coke Money, right? So we have this whole, we see it, right? Um, mm -hmm. Matt Walsh recently made a documentary called What is a Woman? This documentary is an es essentially a rebuttal to the existence of transgender people. Um, so you can imagine the question, what is a woman and where he's going with it. It's very much under the guise of like, I'm just asking questions. I'm just trying to get to the truth. When people ask him why he cares, he says, because objective truth matters. Like, what would we be, like, where would we be if we didn't believe in objective truth, right? Like, I'm just fact-finding. And fact-finding. And then the other kind of justification is that, like, children are being mutilated. How can I not care about this? That's a whole other podcast. Episode, <laughs> yeah. I do, so stay tuned. <laughs> um, but, um... I, so I will say before attacking like what happened, right? I, I will talk about, I did watch his speech twice. You're welcome. Um, and he did have four main points um, to make. They were essentially rebuttals to um, like academia, gender studies, anyone who disagrees mm -hmm. with what he's saying in his documentary. The first point is that... Um, academics gender ideologues as he would frame anyone who uh you know believes that trans women are women um all of us are kind of collapsing we, we say that there's a distinction between sex and gender but by saying trans women are women we are collapsing that because matt walsh is arguing that people saying trans women are women is them saying that trans women and people who are assigned female at birth are biologically the same I've never taught that once in my gender class. I've never been in a gender class once that taught that, but that is his first point, um, that gender ideologues have collapsed the distinction that we created between sex and gender by insisting that trans women are women, which implies in his mind that we are insisting that trans women and assigned female at birth people are exactly the same. Okay. 
point number two is that just because okay so point number two is that matt walsh defines womanhood based on the <laughs> if it's your nature to get pregnant or not and so like uh, one of the rebuttals to some of this right is like we say we say this all the time like there are so many women that can't get pregnant they're still women right mm -hmm. um we talk about women in menopause we talk about women who get cancer right there are so many reasons why you may not be able to get pregnant um but matt walsh is using this and so he says that like you say not all women can get pregnant well i never said it was an absolute statement it, it should just be in your nature to get pregnant just a weird delineation the third <laughs> point strange the third point is that um intersex people number one that true intersex people don't exist he claims that intersex people are people that have functioning reproductive capacities of both male and females um which is not how we define intersex people intersex is an umbrella term to it references like a variety of conditions some are chromosomal some are hormonal right like there is like one in a hundred births i think have some sort of intersex condition so i'll add stats for that as well in the discussion again we teach this and so the other thing he said is that um intersex people have nothing to do with trans people which again is just not true um when we talk about like restricting trans people's ability to play certain sports and different hormonal tests we may use for that um that 100 percent impacts intersex people and then the last point is that um he's arguing that history like reflects a gender binary and that all of these societies we see throughout history which we do have examples of this um where there are third genders or multiple you know genders in between that these are actually just people like these, he actually says these are just men acting like women it doesn't go the other way um and so this again is just factually untrue i will add more sources there are societies throughout time there are societies that have even like a biological like third like sexes because of specific you know um genetic like evolution on like specific islands right so like there's so much variation out there culturally biologically and so i say all that to say matt walsh is just spewing nonsense on our campus um and that that is that um but the other the, the controversy doesn't come from necessarily the nonsense the controversy comes from because because okay first the people who brought you Matt Walsh to ucf funded by our student money is the ucf college republicans who partnered up with the Young America's Foundation, which is one of the Koch-founded student groups or Koch-funded student groups, right? And so the Young America's Foundation has received over $100 million in Koch Industries donations between 2010 and 2017. And their literal, their goal, this foundation, is to bring speakers to college campuses. And so what this led to, though, um, was UCF, because Matt Walsh is inflammatory and there is, the, there is the assumption that people will protest and there may be, you know, um, like chaos <laughs> as a result of somebody like this coming to our campus this uh ucf told student organizations that they couldn't protest they would lose allegedly they said this would lose their um student organization status and that kind of caused chaos to break loose amongst some student organizations it seemed like some students were not um felt like it wasn't worth fanning the flames right and they didn't want to lose their organization status while others like felt it was you know morally wrong for orgs or the university to tell them who they can and can't protest and what happened was matt walsh was able to come to our campus spew a lot of misinformation and left the ucf students with this kind of like manufactured tension and so i wanted to hear what y'all think like what do we do when someone like matt walsh comes to our campus yeah, so I mean, I think that first what needs to be addressed is the structure of UCF, you know, as a university. They, UCF didn't come out and say, give a, a specific uh, statement prohibiting people from protesting, but within their policies, if those organizations, student organizations, uh, were to protest, they could lose their positions in like student government who are the same people who allowed for uh, Matt Walsh to come in. They are the ones that make the decision. Basically, they make they have a vote on the speaker and whether they should be funded to come to UCF. So like it's it's going back to the structure. It's inherent and in the design of the university for these for resistance to these groups to be virtually impossible for organizations that are part of the university because the whole idea is basically, oh, well, if 
any, any organization within UCF protests and almost well, shuts down uh, somebody like Matt Walsh, then that is again, that goes against the interests of the university that misrepresents the values of free speech and welcoming environment, blah, blah, blah. Even though the speaker themselves is uh, like putting out and promoting these ideas that are unwelcoming and creating an unsafe, hostile environment that, like you said, manufactures this conflict between students. Um, and eventually we get first a selective enforcement of uh, free speech policy. So we get the people that can. So of course, people that were supporters uh, uh, of Matt Walsh were running around campus, like you said, Annie, right? Handing out flyers and like getting support. They didn't have to be afraid. They were fine. But organizations that would have opposed Matt Walsh had to stand back uh, due to the selective enforcement of these free speech policies on campus. So there's that. <laughs> right. And so Matt Walsh gets the freedom to speak on campus, but we don't get the freedom to protest him speaking on campus. And also the idea of what is the freedom of speech. It's not that you can just go around and say anything. And if you don't get to say that it's taken, that's your freedom of speech taken away. It's that you can't like first minute, right? Freedom of speech means that like the government cannot come in and take that away from you. It's different than if a bunch of students were like, hey, we don't want you on this campus. That's not your First Amendment right being taken away. That's just the fact that people don't want to hear you say stupid things. And that's completely different. And mm -hmm. so the frustrating thing is that like, it, it's frustrating for us as students because UCF paid for this with money that they've gotten from students through our tuition. And so you know, we always talk about how money is power. Money is now a form of speech. So if we allow our money to go to Matt Walsh, it feels like we're essentially saying, okay, we will support this in some way. And I understand the conflict in whether to protest or not, but you know, what is the point of creating these coalitions of these organizations to fight against power structures if we're not gonna do it when something as small as Matt Walsh coming to campus happens? And so if we can't fight these things, these, uh, someone coming to our campus, then how are we supposed to fight larger injustices? And, mm -hmm. you know, going back to my episode where I talk about the Holocaust, everyone likes comparing things to the Holocaust, but no one likes comparing things to the beginning of the Holocaust, which is ignoring small movements of injustice. And to me, that's what this looked like. There was someone who obviously was against trans lives. And, you know, we talk about this very theoretically, but like, uh, black trans women are the most murdered group of people in the U.S. You know, we're talking about actual lives at hand if like this hate spreads. And so if we can't stop this hate right now, it's just going to keep forming and keep forming and then it's going to get harder to stop in the future. And so if lives are being lost right now because of this like hate speech, then we have to stop it now before it gets even worse. And so it's like, I understand the frustration, but what we're creating these organizations on campus to protect ourselves. And so I feel like it's time for them to be used, you know, but mm -hmm. I understand the back and forth. <laughs> yeah, I think that, and it's also legitimizing to a certain extent what people like Matt Walsh and their funders, their sources mm -hmm. of, of funding are doing. Because mm -hmm. basically the whole, I, it's an illusion. Like free speech, that's an illusion here. Because if the people with free speech are the ones that have the money to bring the speakers, the ones that have the money to bring the lawyers, whenever th they bring security to incite violence so they can arrest people and then build some cases. And then they have already this whole like structure um, to protect themselves and their organizations um, and their free speech, then that's not free speech. That's like whoever has the, more re the most resources Whoever has the most power gets to speak. So that's mm -hmm. what I see here. It's like to stand back. And again, we will continue this conversation as to like the questions. Uh, how do we respond? Uh, because I understand that like student organizations are at a difficult, like there's tension uh, and yeah, they're in a difficult position. But when it comes to responding, to these things, what we need to first do first is to not legitimize the idea of free speech 
when it comes to people like Matt Walsh, like yeah. to pretend that this is fair, you know, that it's fair. It's fair that they're here and it's fair for us to stand back uh, to protect our organizations and ourselves. Um, you know, I, I think that that's the beginning of the issue. I think if we spent more time and maybe that's what we're trying to do here, if we spent <laughs> more time trying to uncover uh, and lift this like smoke screen that has been created uh, that deviates our debates um, and just devolves into something that it isn't, it obscures. It obscures these people that are behind these efforts, um, like and the Koch brothers. And it's hard because our response, you know, we had Caitlin Bennett come to campus a couple of years ago and there was a, a lot of people who came out and they end up running her into a closet in Einstein's bagels because like there's <laughs> such a big crowd protesting against her. But mm -hmm. what she did was she was able to take those videos of this crazy woke mob, quote unquote, and post it on social media. And then a bunch of people supported her. A bunch of people were like, oh, those woke libs, look at them. Like, you know, they use our response to then flame, like make it even worse for us. They make fun of us. We get told that like we are these crazy people that they want like the general public to believe that we are so they also use our angered response against us which is really frustrating because that just leaves us like we're between a rock and a hard place like what are we supposed to do here any action that we do could be used against us and to further their platform but not acting means that we are supporting their platform too so it's extremely they purposefully put us in this very conflicting place they are doing this on purpose so that we will have these arguments we will fight against each other and then we will end up doing nothing because it's just mm -hmm. too difficult to try to comb out it, it's frustrating for us and that's what they wanted us to basically have to sit back and be like oh i'm paralyzed i don't know what to do i don't know if i've actually mentioned this on the podcast but i do teach our undergraduate class at ucf which is why the matt lost topic and the right like the speech topic in and of itself was so like uh, I, I was magnetized to it um but i talked about this in my class with my students just last week um and the question kind of was like do you think right because i broke down his speech it's so funny we talk about campus free speech and then i talked a bunch about like gender misinformation right but the reason i broke that down was to talk about like i guess my question then is like will education work right like we we believe that knowledge is power and we're here like on these like you know super social justice for these social justice oriented reasons we want to educate people and empower people but like can you educate matt walsh about the misinformation he was spewing right like is that going to do anything um and the answer was no for most of my students and that kind of led us to he's not here for gender right like he's not mm -hmm. here for gender he's here for something else and it leads me back to what hallie was saying like almost this creation of us versus them right or this reproduction of an us versus them and again this reminds me uh, we can talk about this with gender or with almost any of the topics we've we've talked about with, is this like binary thinking right what this leads to is students against each other there's like the pro-protesters and the anti-protesters right we have our republicans and our democrats on campus fighting over this right like our our gender ideologues and our gender critics critics if we want to separate they definitely don't self-identify as that i'm categorizing them as that but we have a lot of like binaries we are then confronted with and what again this does is erases the structures right it erases the matt walsh's goal which is to fuel a campus free speech war right not to really fuel a gender war although that is definitely a side project um it doesn't go anywhere close to like the Koch brothers and why they're trying to shift college campus culture, right? And it has to do with business and the economy, mm -hmm. right? But we're sitting here talking about trans women being women, right? And being mad at other students for like supporting a bigot coming here. And what we're not doing, um, as y'all both mentioned, is like looking back to the structure. Um, and so that is kind of my loop around to the end of this and why I went through all of those crazy details, right? Is the loop. <laughs> To show like not only th that the structure exists but it, that it manufactures outrage right and that outrage needs to be redirected and there there's there's the coke brothers history <laughs> I will, i'm gonna put a caveat that is by far not exhaustive um but i did the best i could in the time i had but y'all there's so much more out there and i acknowledge that <laughs> yeah no i think you gave us a great 
overview, very in-depth. <laughs> um, and I think that going back, you know, just to mention uh, the education aspect, I think that our efforts shouldn't be at trying to educate or change the minds of somebody like Matt Walsh and anybody that is a hardcore like fan. <laughs> I think that our energy is best spent probably educating at least on college campuses, like the rest of the student body about what really is going on, about not getting distracted, although, and <laughs> it's doing both. You know, we, we do need to stand against uh, people like Matt Walsh. We do need to be a visible resistance and we need to normalize resistance even if it helps their case. Because at the end of the day, the only reason why it helps their case is because we legitimize their case against us, like I said. So I think that um, both educating the student body about what really is going on and also showing up and resisting people like him and making sure that there is a visible resistance are both needed. Um, and going back to our main concepts for this series, sociological imagination and intersectionality. Again, it's looking beyond that individual, like whether you as an individual like Matt Walsh and agree with his ideas or not, it's really, we need to use these tools again to look back to the structure and realize what really is going on um, and how these systems are working together to uphold a specific, like a specific social order that benefits only a specific group of people like the Koch brothers and other organizations. Um, so we see the same, we see the same strategy across organizations like the Christian right, the NRA and the Koch brothers. Um, and they are, they're all like actually overlapping um, in real life. So hopefully through the series, we can give people um, some sort of tools and context uh, to address these issues and redirect their outrage back to what the, the moving parts that are really contributing to these issues. Absolutely. And I think that's a perfect way to sum up all three of these episodes. So this is the end of our mini series called The Structures. And so we just want to make sure you guys understood, you know, there is larger things going on that's affecting our personal lives and what we see going on. Um, but moving forward, now that we've discussed these organizations that contribute to social issues and we want to we want you to redirect your outrage, but now we're going to discuss how to do that. <laughs> um, so our next episode, we're going to be talking about shifting and transforming our outrage and taking action for social change and social justice through the lens of Black feminist thought. And we're going to have a very special guest scholar on our episode. So we're really excited for you guys to watch that. So if you are watching these and feel angry and you don't know what to do with that anger, don't worry. We got you. It's coming. <laughs> Just hold it a little longer and then we can all transform it. Um, so thank you guys so much for watching to this episode and for listening through our mini series. And thank you, Annie, again, for coming on and sharing so much about the Koch brothers. It was in intense. Thank <laughs> you for having me. We'd also like to thank the University of Central Florida Department of Sociology for their generous support of this podcast. 